Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Beginning with John 9, verses 1 through 7, And he, he being Jesus, passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Then if you'll drop down to verse 35, this is at the end of the story after several conversations have transpired. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. I'm going to preach this morning on the gift of sight. You may be seated. One of the things that I love about the Bible, among many, is that the Bible doesn't shy away from the hard issues of life, from hard issues in general. The Bible does not sugarcoat the lives of people. There are a lot of great saints in the Bible, Old Testament and New, especially in the Old Testament, that did some pretty bad things, and they're still great saints. They're still, we still look up to them. But David, Abraham, Moses, I mean, they all have their dark chapters even after they come to God, and the Bible doesn't shy away from this. One of the subjects the Bible doesn't shy away from is the subject of human suffering. Suffering is a reality of life. We will all suffer, some more than others. Uh, I, I was thinking this morning, about a family that I know uh, that has walked faithfully with God over the years. Man, they have suffered just over and over. Uh, And just things that, weird things, things that don't happen to very many people. And they've, most people in life won't experience one of these things. And they just, uh, for the last 30 years, they've just continued to experience uh, tragedy and trauma one after another through no fault of their own. So people do suffer, but we all, in in some extent, we're going to battle things in life even after we come to God. And some of it is brought on by our own doing. We all do things in life that cause suffering, and some suffering just happens and there's no explanation. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a question that's asked often in Christianity. It's a question that's asked often in the world apart from Christianity. Why do bad things happen to, have to happen to good people? 
People want to know why, but why is there suffering in the first place? Like this man in John 9 who's born from a child, from the, out of his womb, he's born blind. How is that fair? That everybody else gets to see this man doesn't have that opportunity. Why does this man have to suffer? Why is there evil in the world? Events even this week that transpired and you say, why, why is there evil like this in the world? And I contend that it's the hardest theological, Bible, and philosophical question because these will be, this question will be encountered often if you were to take a philosophy class in college. You would encounter this question at some point. What is the origin of evil? Why does evil exist? Why does suffering exist? I've spent many, many hours pondering this, reading about it. Uh, I've spent time writing about it. Uh, what what is this deal about human suffering? And you may say, well, actually, it's really simple. It's because of sin. Mankind fell into sin. And in Genesis, in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sin, and the curse of sin is death and sickness and suffering, and then evil is introduced in the world, and there is a Satan and, and all of this. And so it's, it's, it's really simple, right? That's the reason why there is. And I would say, well, yes, that's true, but that's not the question. The question is, why was there even sin and evil in the first place? If an infinitely holy God who knows no evil is not capable of anything but good and anything that's pure, and He is pure light, if an infinitely pure God created everything, how did something that came out of pure light become dark? How is it even possible that evil could be introduced in the world if in the beginning there was only God and everything comes from God? It is logical to think that the created life that exists from an infinitely good, loving, and holy God would also have to have inherently a good nature. Like, like begets like. Holiness begets holiness and righteousness. Therefore, it is illogical to ask, how can there even be pain and suffering in the world as a result of evil? In other words, how is it even possible that evil can exist? The Bible indicates that we as human beings are capable of producing evil intentions and evil deeds from our heart. There's no indication in a lot of passages in scriptures that this is a tandem lockstep work with Satan. It's just rather by default our hearts are, are inclined towards evil. We all have tendencies to do bad things. We are born with a sinful nature. You don't have to teach a child how to lie. You have to teach a child how to tell the truth. You don't have to teach a child how to misbehave, how not to listen, how to do things they shouldn't. You have to do the opposite. You have to train them away because the natural bent is towards something that's not good. This was the reason for the destruction of humanity in Genesis 6, and it continues to be the reality of our existence today. The key difference between our evil and Satan's evil is that humans are not pure evil. Humans retain elements of the original creation of the goodness of God. We still, even in our broken nature, we still reflect good things. People who are not Christians can still do good works and love other people and help other people. That's not related to anything to do with their faith. It is something still in them because they are made in the image of God. Pascal said we are glorious ruins. 
Like we have this two-sided nature. We are inclined to do these evil things, but we also are capable of doing some really great and loving and kind things for people. People do that even who have no belief in God. So it's this, it's this tension, it's this, these two natures, these two sides that are running into each other. We are given grace by God to be invited into a relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ with the promise of future grace that will, will redeem our hearts, our minds, our bodies, and it will allow us someday to live in an eternal, sinless state of existence where we don't have the inclination to evil. But if God is good and holy, why do I experience the raw, painful emotions that are part of every human's experience? Why do I still, after I'm regenerated, why do I still have these things that are inclined to not please God? It's that, that nature. I don't have a good answer because I don't have a biblical answer on the origin of suffering and evil. There are many viewpoints on this. I'd be glad to sit down with anybody and discuss them. I don't want that to be the focal point of the sermon today, but um, I've written about some of these things. There are a lot of different views about how evil was introduced in the world and why it is, and people, people have been thinking about this for a very, very long time. So it's, I don't expect to just come up with the automatic answer that everybody agrees with, because for thousands of years people have been asking this question. What I do want to highlight this morning is that what is going on in John 9 is suffering, and I don't want to shy away from the fact that people suffer. And I would like it to be known that as a church, we don't shy away from the hard questions, and we don't claim to have all the answers. That we're okay saying we're still wrestling with some of these things. That we don't, you know, you don't come here and just get all the answers, step one, two, and three, because life's not that simple. And I do know that few things would give us as a church, and I think all of us, a sense of deep satisfaction as a people, to know that we are a people who minister to suffering people. There is suffering in the world, what are we going to do about it? There is suffering in the world, how are we going to minister to those people who are suffering? There is brokenness and hurting in the world, how are we going to bring people in here and minister to them and help them? So in John 9, Jesus notices, it starts out that Jesus, Jesus notices that there is a man who has been blind from his birth. And the disciples ask a really interesting question. You can tell a lot about how people think about suffering in the question that the disciples asked. In this case, it's blindness from birth, but you could insert any kind of suffering into the question. This particular story, a man blind from day one. But insert any kind of suffering and the disciples are asking a bigger question. Why is this man blind? There's only two options, Jesus. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. And it also shows that the disciples would have thought that Jesus would have a divine insight into this question that they didn't have. They asked him a question fitting only for someone who has the insight that God would have. You're the son of God. You have insight into these things. What was the reason? And it's really more just a question of curiosity. They didn't ask Jesus, are you going to heal him? Are, you, are we going to do anything about it? Are we going to give him $5? It was just, why is he in that condition? The disciples made an automatic assumption. Not only is sickness and suffering caused by the original sin of Adam and Eve and the curse of sin that has followed every person since then, the disciples say, no, it's a direct sin, either in his life or in his parents'. 
And then there's the question of the disciples' logic. How could this man's direct sin cause blindness from the time he was born? He never had a chance to sin. What, did he sin in his mother's womb? And like, that's, that has, that's kind of the logic there. It's like, he sinned so he's blind, but he was blind from the time he was born. The question doesn't make sense. But it does show the assumption the disciples made that blindness was caused by somebody's specific sin. And then, is it caused by its, his parents' sin? And how unfair is that? How unfair is it that a child would be born blind because of something their parents did. That's not fair, that, that children would suffer because of their parents. But of course we know that children suffer every day because of what their parents do. It's a thing in the world. It's one of the biggest problems in the world. Children suffer because of their parents' sin. I preached the funeral of a 22-year-old young lady who had overdosed on heroin. And she had a child that was a very young child who was not even in her care. I think it was in the care of a, uh, of a special home that had to care for the child because of the mother's drug addiction. The, the child was born. I don't remember which one it was. I can't remember if the child was born blind or deaf. I think it may have been both. I, it's been a while and I just don't remember. I know it was at least one or the other that the child, and because of this she was unable to take care of the child because she had her own addiction still and uh, she had, she'd got clean, and like so many uh, people that go back to it, they go back to the dose that they last were on, but now they're clean and their body doesn't have the tolerance, and this is exactly what she did. She miscalculated the dose and overdosed and passed away, and so I, I preached her funeral, and it's about a 30-minute drive from Rockwall to where they buried her and so I rode in the in the hearse with the director and he was telling me some of the more of the backstory and it was just a horrific sad situation. They buried her on the family's private property uh, which you have to get permits to do but they did and, and right next to a cousin of hers that had died not that long before that another young man and as I as I talked with the family it was just I realized that you know, these people are, are wrought with tragedy and suffering, but how unfair was it for that little child that she should have to suffer for her mother's sin? So the principle is not absurd to say that this man was blind because of his parents' sin. I mean, it happens every day. Some children suffer because of original sin and some suffer because uh, their parents are idiots. And, uh, and at, all, at some point in life, we're all idiots. Uh, we all do things that cause people to suffer. And that's a, another thing. I, I don't know of much else that would make us uh, happy and satisfied and give us a sense of ful fulfillment if we could be known as a church who ministered to suffering children, to help suffering people like this. But Jesus rejects both ideas and says it's not because his parents sinned and it's not because he sinned. That's not the reason. This man was born blind so that the works of God could be shown in this man. That's why he was born blind. Now Jesus would know. He was born blind because I'm going to heal him. I'm going to do a miracle in his life. Now, Jesus does not use the word miracle. He uses the word works. 
And I'm going to take a little diversion here because I think it's really important on how we think about God and how we think about what God does and how we think about what miracles and the supernatural is. We have the word miracle in our Bible, but it doesn't quite mean maybe sometimes what we might think it may mean. It's translated, and you're going to hear me very, very seldom go back to the original languages and talk about the original languages. Um, and there's reasons I don't do that often. But in this case, it, I want you to see this. We have this word miracle in our Bible in the New Testament, and it is translated from a Greek word called dynamice. Now, Acts 19.11, God was doing extraordinary miracles. The writer, Luke, would have wrote down the word dynamite. That's the word he would have used. By the hands of Paul. Extraordinary dynamite by the hands of Paul. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul's writing, talking about the gifts of the Spirit. That believers get certain gifts. Some believers get the working of miracles. The working of dynamite. Now, Alfred Nobel, who you know as the guy who's named after the Nobel Peace Prize and other awards that are named after Nobel, Alfred Nobel invented something called Nobel's blasting powder. And it was a blasting powder he made to blast out rocks. And marketing ploy said, that doesn't really have a ring. I need something to describe what that is, so I'm going to call it dynamite. And I'm going to do so because there's this Greek word that's dynamice, and it means power. That's all the word means, is powerful. It's something that's powerful. So I'm going to call this powder dynamite, and Nobel invents dynamite. So the next time you read the word miracle in your Bible, think about dynamite. It's the same thing. It's something that's powerful. But that's what the word meant in context, is that they were doing something that was very powerful. So do I believe in miracles? And I'd answer you, no. Not in the way that it's often thought of. I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in the supernatural. And this is important. And there's nobody here to wrangle me off, off stage here to say, well, <laughs> I thought you believed in miracles. You can't. No, uh, I, it's, it's how we think about this. I don't believe in miracles and the supernatural in the way that we use the term. Often, the way we think about it. And here's why. Some of the founding fathers uh, were, many of the founding fathers were what we would call deists. They believed in deism. Deism, it's a very dangerous idea, it's not nearly as popular today, but back then it was really a thing. And deism is the idea that there is a God, they're, they're correct there, and that there is a creator. That this creator God created everything in the universe, and so far we're good, we're, we're on page with scripture. But what deism says is that he creates this system, and then it's a closed system, and the creator steps away, says, okay, I've created this system, it's a closed system, I'm not going to intervene with it at all, because if I did intervene, that would be supernatural. That would be miraculous for a God who is, the, the term that's often used is that he is an absentee landlord. He, is, he made the stuff, but now he can't be bothered with the stuff. He's off doing something else. So he, he has these immutable laws of the universe that keep everything going in the universe, but he's not involved at all. He created everything, and then he steps back and he does not intervene. And for him to intervene would be the supernatural. And that's how deists saw it. 
And what this was, it was an idea. He's locked out. I'm glad it's mine. In this sense, we don't believe in the supernatural because we don't believe that God is off doing something else. He's got this closed system that's just the physical world. And this was a big idea three, four hundred years ago. This is why the founding fathers, a lot of them, Thomas Jefferson at the top of the list, he embraces this. There is a God, but he's not involved in our, our daily affairs at all. Because if he were to break back through this closed system, that would be miraculous. And that's what I mean when I say I don't believe in the miraculous, not by that definition. God is the creator of all things. Before anything was, God was, and God is, and will always be. He is the eternal present. Everything comes from Him, but everything just didn't come from Him. He is also the sustainer of life and the universe. Not only was the world framed by the Word of God, it is upheld by His power and His will. Asaph in Psalm 75 quotes God and says, When the, pillar, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who steady its pillars. The tottering of the earth in the context seems to refer to unrest in society. It's good to know we weren't the first culture that has unrest. This is what Asaph is writing about. He's using the tottering of the earth as a metaphor for unrest in his culture. And then he says, God says that when this happened, when the earth shakes, when it seems like the wheels are coming off the bus, it is I, the Lord, who will restore order and stability. That's what Asaph is trying to say. God is not some absentee landlord. When he moves and works, it's not supernatural. It's just God doing what God does. Can God open up blind eyes and unstop deaf ears? Yes. But it's not really that much of a miracle. It's just God doing what God does. It's nothing to God. It's nothing to, for God to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to fix relationships. There's nothing extraordinary about that. There's nothing or even supernatural about that. It's the work of the Lord. So Jesus chooses this word work and says, this man was born blind, and he doesn't use the word miracle or some kind of supernatural. He goes, just so I can do what I do. Maybe we'd see more of these things that we call miracles if we stopped putting them out of reach and think it's some far out thing that would just, should stun everybody if this happens. Say, no, it shouldn't stun us. It's just simply God doing what God does. And we accept with simple faith that God can do anything. Does God heal? Yes. But it's not a stretch for God to, to heal. I've known people personally who have been healed of cancer. I've known people who have had incredible miracles in their lives. And I can think of two instances when I was there praying for these people. And neither time I could take you to the exact spot where both of these happened and tell you their names. Both times, the prayers that we prayed for these people, nothing extraordinary seemed like it happened. We've prayed for people lots of times just like this. One of them was a very simple prayer. I mean, no fanfare, pizzazz, goosebumps. It was just a simple prayer. But God chose to heal that girl of cancer when we prayed. God chose to remove the tumor from that man's body that the doctors had a biopsy of. 
the doctors still went f forward with the surgery. It took so long, the family was scared because it was taking longer than they thought, and the reason it was taking so long is because they were trying to find it. They basically unpacked his entire insides trying to find it and finally came out to the waiting room and apologized to the family, said, folks, we, we can't find this, this tumor. Man went back to the doctor, who was a non-believer and did not believe in healing at all. And he looked at him, he said, I have one question for you. He said, did you see what I saw in that scan? And he said, yes, sir. And the doctor said, so did I. And he turned around and walked out of the room. He said, if you don't have a capacity for these things, you don't know how to handle them. So do I still believe in miracles and the supernatural? Not in the sense that it's often defined. Not in the sense even that the founding fathers would have thought about it, that if they would have saw somebody healed, they would have said, well, that's supernatural because this is a closed system and now God has broke back through. He's supposed to be off doing something else, not minding us attention. And we would say, no, God is present and near and paying attention to everything we do. He is a personal, relational God. The word works. John, John writes that Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Who is the we and who is the him and who is the me? He says there's we and him and me. Well, we is us and him is God and he is Jesus. God sends Jesus and Jesus says God has a work to do that we must participate with him in doing. We have a work to do. We all have a work. We are all called to participate with Christ in the work of the kingdom. And there is a sense of urgency in his words. The night is coming when no one can work. And, and think of how they would have understood his words. Up till just a few decades ago, before electricity, nighttime was very different than it was for us. Once the sun went down, it was dark everywhere. There's no street lamps, no car lights, no inside lights. You've got a torch or a lantern or a candle, but that's it. When it got dark, it was dark everywhere. You didn't work at night. This is what Jesus is saying. The night is coming when no man can work. And they would have, we don't understand that because we can work at night if we want to, but they would have understood what he meant. The nighttime is coming. And the image of light and darkness when speaking of a blind man cannot be overlooked. This man is living in total darkness. He's never seen light. And Jesus is the light of the world. He is the truth, the hope, the peace, the anti-darkness. And he's going to show this man light, but not just physically. He's going to show this man light spiritually. So Jesus spits on the ground and he makes a mud ball and he puts it in this man's eye. And if you want to know why he decided to spit in the dirt and make a mud ball and put it in the guy's eye rather than simply say be healed, you'll have to wait till you die and ask Jesus because I don't know. I have no, the Bible doesn't say, I, I've read, read all the reasons why people say this is why he did it. And I'm like, well, Jesus didn't say why he did it. So I, I don't know why he did it that way. So he says to the man, go wash in the pool which is already what the guy's going to do, because this guy just spit in the dirt and put mud in my eye. I'm going to go wash it out no matter what. But he says, go ahead and go wash in the pool. And the man comes back and the man can see. And the man does what you would do. He starts telling the story to the people around him. And they brought him to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. 
And they asked him, how is it possible that you're seeing? Because you've been blind for a very long time. And so he tells them the story. And the Pharisees say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. They were more concerned about Jesus keeping the Sabbath than they were the fact that he just healed this man of blindness. Other people said to the Pharisees, how could this man be a sinner? Because he's doing these signs. No man can do these signs except he comes from God. So there was a dispute. So they asked the healed man, what do you think? And of course, he's biased because he just got healed. And so he says, well, I think the man's a prophet. The Jews don't believe the man, so they go and get his parents. And they said, is this your son? And they said, yes, that's our son. We can confirm he was born blind. And then they said, he's of age. Ask him yourself. Why are you asking me this? He's an adult. You go ask him. The Bible says they said this because they were afraid to confess that Jesus was the Christ because if they did, they would be banned from the temple. So evidently that was a thing, that if you believed in Jesus, you could not go to the temple anymore and worship. So then they turned to the healed man and they said, you need to give God glory and not Jesus, because they're making this real distinction. If you got healed, thank God, but don't thank this man Jesus, because he's a sinner. And I love the statement that the man says. He says, whether he be a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, once I was blind, and now I see. And this continues to go on in circles. If you read the chapter, they keep going around like this. I mean, they just keep this back and forth arguing about this. Uh, and in the end result is they end up casting the healed man out of the temple. So Jesus hears about it. Somebody says, hey, Jesus, the guy you just healed, they cast him out of the temple. So Jesus goes and finds the man. And remember that Jesus said the man is a prophet. But that's not good enough. Jesus doesn't want to leave it there. He doesn't want any of us to leave it there to think he was a good man or a good teacher. There's lots of people, there's religions in the world that reject Christ, that reject Jesus as the Messiah, but still say, well, he was a prophet, he was a good man, he just wasn't divine, he wasn't the son of God. And Jesus says, no, that's not good enough. Jesus has a question for him. So Jesus asks him, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, and who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you've seen him and it is I, it is he who's speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And there it is. It's not enough to believe he's a good man or a prophet. You must see him as the son of man, the son of God, God manifested in human flesh. And then you must worship him. Jesus chooses the phrase. I don't think this is by accident. When Jesus says, it is I that speaks to you and you have seen him. Up until that day, the man had never seen anybody. He was blind. And now Jesus is saying, you have seen him. The first time ever, the first thing you've ever saw, you've seen him. But not only have you seen him physically, Jesus is trying to open up his eyes to say, there's more here to see than just the natural. Now you can only see my person. You can see who I am. Jesus is not only giving him the gift of eyesight, he is healing him of his spiritual blindness so the man can see and know and believe that Jesus Christ is God. I would hate to lose my eyesight. I mean, that would be, that would be horrible. So I'm not minimizing that. Uh, it would be a terrible thing to, to be blind. But it is nothing in comparison to being in spiritual darkness and spiritually blind. 
I don't have to have these two eyes to be saved. As much as I'd hate to lose them, I would be okay long term. I'd make it if I lost my eyesight. But I must see with the eyes of my heart who Jesus is. That is non-negotiable. And I must believe in Him and I must worship Him. And the man who can now see said three of the most powerful words a human being can utter. Lord, I believe. Jesus is seeking worshipers. In John 4, we covered it weeks ago. John 4, the woman at the well. He tells her the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That's what God is doing today. He's seeking people who will worship Him. Worship is more than what happens when we come together on a Sunday morning once a week. As important and as vital as this is to our spiritual formation to gather together as the people of God, uh, it is one hour a week. Yes, you should come here and worship. And yes, I, I thank you for coming here to worship together. It's very important. But we are to be worshipers in every area of our life. That's what God's calling us to, is to be worshipers. It's part of, of what we do. It's why I'm very careful i won't do it i know churches who have done this where they will assign people in their spiritual progress they will assign them uh, i've known of groups that have done like s1 through 5 you know you're at this point in your spiritual formation your development well there's no man that could assign that you may complete some curriculum you may take some classes but only god knows your heart I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't, I don't have that privilege of seeing your heart and your, and your life of where you're at in your walk with God. I can, I can gauge certain things, but it's, it's really not up to me. My job's to preach and make disciples and lead people in worship, but ultimately your personal sanctification, your personal spiritual development and formation, that is a personal thing between you and God. And we're here to help facilitate that. That's what we do. We're here to help facilitate that relationship. But half of your spiritual formation is discipleship. It's teaching. It's people putting into you things. But the other half is the sanctification through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's a personal thing between you and God. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, says, Now we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. That's how you're transformed into the image of God, beholding His glory, being exposed to His glory through His Spirit, through His Word, as often as you can, just getting close to God and letting His Spirit transform your life. I don't get to see inside of that. I don't get to say you're here and you're here and, and you're over here. That's between you and God. It's a personal thing. But the question I would ask this morning, is are you a worshiper? And could you confess like this man confesses? There's a lot of things I don't know, but one thing I do know, once I was blind and now I can see. We all can confess that this morning, spiritually. Once I was blind and now I can see. And if you can see, and I, I think you do or you wouldn't be here, if you have that gift 
of spiritual eyesight, what the Apostle Paul calls the eyes of the heart. Paul says that you have the eyes of the heart and that they may be enlightened through the, the, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have that, I didn't convince you of that. You weren't, you didn't hear a debate and was convinced of that. If you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that you're a worshiper, and you're trying to pursue Him with everything you have. If you are that person this morning, you have one person to thank for that today, and that's God Himself. He has opened up our understanding and opened up our lives. And if we have that, we are above all men and women, blessed and highly favored. Stand with me this morning. She comes back to the music. Would you bow your heads? Father, thank you this morning for your word and your spirit that is here at work in our hearts. What I pray most is that as we walk out of here today and go our ways, that your spirit would not stop talking to us. That every day in every aspect and area of life that the Holy Spirit would minister, that we'd feel you near, but that we'd hear that still small voice that would touch us and minister to us today. Go with us, strengthen us, help us to be worshipers, to be disciples, to know that you have called us to do a work. You told your disciples that there is a work that we, you included us, that we must participate with you in. So Lord, help us to find that work, find our place in the kingdom, what it is that we're supposed to be doing in the kingdom to work in tandem with you. Lord, to see the advancement of your kingdom and the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that you keep your hand upon us today, Lord, that you lead us in paths of righteousness. Lord, we will worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship for a moment as she leads us in song.